home. Home is where the heart is and now the office and the school and the shops and the concerts too. On this Inside Intercom mini-series, we're exploring what that means for various facets of life and how people are managing to persevere with the help of technology. For our final episode in this series, we're chatting to people from across the world of entertainment and culture to find out how an industry that thrives on experiences, audiences and collaboration is managing to continue to bring joy, laughter and expression, despite the odds. There's no doubt that our guests today come from sectors that face some really unique challenges in terms of adapting their work to a remote environment. But these sectors are also where you'll find some of the most creative people. And these testing times have resulted in some really innovative approaches. Today we'll hear from Mark O'Connell, prize-winning author of To Be A Machine and more recently the chillingly titled Notes From An Apocalypse. Owen Nolan, Principal Engineer at Intercom and developer of Vemos, the watch-along add-on for Chrome. Anthony LeBlanc, Artistic Director for The Second City, the improvisational comedy enterprise that boasts Bill Murray, Tina Fey and Jordan Peele amongst its alumni. Denise McNamara, series producer of The Six O'Clock Show on Virgin Media Television, and Phil Jones, Director of International Relations and Artist Management at Park the Van Records and Management. As always, there's lots to cover, so let's dive in. Who better to speak to in the midst of a global pandemic than the man who spent the last few years contemplating what one of those might look like and what it might mean for humanity? Mark O'Connell won worldwide acclaim for his book, To Be a Machine. Recently, he launched his second. The jury is still out on whether this could or couldn't come at a better time. Yeah, well, I'm a nonfiction writer based in Dublin. I write, I guess, what you would characterize as creative nonfiction or narrative nonfiction. Both of my books so far have been, well, my first book was an exploration of transhumanism, which is essentially a kind of a, social movement, largely based in and around Silicon Valley and the sort of tech world in general. And it's sort of predicated on the idea that technology will provide a means to transcending the human condition and living forever. So I spent like a couple of years interviewing transhumanists, people who believe that we're going to become immortal. Our next stage of evolution will involve sort of becoming machines. And then my most recent book, which is called Notes from an Apocalypse, is about apocalyptic anxiety, basically, about the sort of notion that we are living at a time of particular kind of apocalyptic fervor and fear. Um, And so that book involved largely, it's a bit more personal than the first book, but it involved a lot of sort of getting to grips with various scenes and various people who believe that in some way the apocalypse is coming or civilization is on the verge of collapsing. So the launch was, you know, in very obvious ways, quite anticlimactic because the thing about writing a book is that you spend, even me as a nonfiction writer, you know, who spends a lot of time traveling around and meeting people, you do spend a lot of time still stuck in a room finishing the book. And, you know, the editing process goes on for the guts of a year and that's quite solitary. And, you know, so at the end of writing a book, all things being equal, you kind of go out into the world and you, you know, you have a launch and you meet people and, you know, you hopefully meet people who read your book and all that stuff. And so that none of that has happened or it has happened, but it's happened all like virtually. It's all happened from my spare room. So that's been a bit weird. And yeah, the book launch was like a virtual book launch, which happened on Twitter. Seemed fine. <laughs> like, I don't know. 
hard to like really hard to measure these things. I mean, the point of all of these things, of course, is to sell books. And I don't know if it sold books, fine. Yeah. But it didn't. It, you know, it doesn't have quite the same. I did it in my front garden. It was a nice day. I had a beer in my garden and like answered a bunch of questions on Twitter, and uh, that was it. You know, I didn't have a hangover afterwards, so that was that was a plus. Well, that's right. But I didn't get to see anyone, which is yeah. a minus, I think. Yeah. It's a weird time in so many ways anyway, but it is a particularly weird time to be launching a book uh, for the reasons that I've just said. Also, bookshops are closed. That's not ideal. <laughs> but it, like in other ways, obviously the sort of topic of the book has given it a sort of foothold in the media attention and public attention that it might not otherwise have had quite so firm a grasp on. So that I, I guess it kind of nets out in certain ways. It's really hard to measure though. I was going to ask you about that because, you know, as you've said, you've been working on the edit of it for over a year. As the launch date approached, was there ever a fear for you and your publishing team or your PR team that actually launching a book with the title that it has was a little bit on the nose for the times that we find ourselves in? Or did you just think, no, this really speaks at the moment? <laughs> I mean, like, a, I mean, the publishing is such a mysterious business. I mean, not like, it's kind of refreshing in a way that like very few people in publishing claim to know what the hell is going on because what's, what's going to work and what's not is so unpredictable, like everything. But I think you have fewer people in publishing who claim to be able to sort of read the tea leaves or whatever. And I think the sense was that, I mean, it is a gamble because do people want to read a book called Notes from an Apocalypse during a time when all anyone can think and talk about is how apocalyptic everyone, everything feels? Mm. Hard to say, and it's still hard to say. I mean, the book seems to be getting a lot of attention and it, people seem to be reading it. Whether that would be the case otherwise is really hard to say. I, I think like the trend at the moment in publishing seems to be people are reading more, but they're also they're reading more for escapism. They're reading like sort of light novels and books about non-virus related things. So like, it's hard to know whether it was a good thing or a bad thing that my book sort of came crashing into this particular context at this particular time like I'm lucky in that I trust my publishers and I trust my um, publicists and so on the thing that I felt not so much now but definitely in the sort of couple of weeks before the book came out when things were getting really grim like you know at one point Amazon weren't shipping books they had in the UK they had decided to prioritize like necessary items so things like nappies and you know, toilet paper were being prioritized over books. So they had just stopped shipping books. And that was like a moment where it was like, oh shit, this is like the worst possible time to be publishing a book if Amazon aren't shipping it. But I sort of felt like I was in a plane that was like taking off or landing during a storm. And I don't know who the pilot was, but I wasn't the pilot. I don't know whether I was the plane or the passenger, but it was like a turbulent, turbulent time. But it seems to, you know, it seems it's getting out there. People are reading it and it's like, it's doing well, so. Yeah, I guess, I mean, if you can get the book to people in some jurisdictions, at least you you quite literally have a captive audience. That's true. Yeah. And people, like I say, people are reading more. It's tough because like the book is like in a way, like the, the conversation around the book has largely sort of at least began from the sort of premise that this book has like come at the most eerily perfect time. And like it's the, the word that it got used in a lot of reviews was prescient, which is sort of slightly flattering in one way, but also like completely nonsensical because, you know, 
there's nothing prescient about the book at all. I mean, it's sheer dumb luck that it happened to come out at the time, either good luck or bad luck that it happened to come out at the time that it came out. I mean, I couldn't have foreseen this any more than anyone else. And if you had foreseen it, you might not have written the book. <laughs> yeah, possibly not. Yeah, I might have written something completely different. Or I would at least have included a chapter about like, you know, viral pandemics or whatever. Make no mistake though, Mark's book isn't World War Z for the literati. The ideas and anxieties he explores run much deeper and tell us more about human nature than about the end of the world. So many of the scenarios that I write about, the people who are obsessed with their various kind of apocalyptic sort of scenarios, they all have to do with like civil unrest and people kind of reverting to savagery. And, you know, there's a an asteroid hits the planet or like a, a nuclear exchange or, you know, something like this, like a viral pandemic. And it, inevitably the result of that thing is always people start acting crazy and you've got to protect yourself and your family and your home against like violent marauders who are out for blood. It's like, you know, immediate zombie apocalypse stuff. And that hasn't happened. Unsurprisingly, I think, you know, because that's one of the underlying arguments that I make in the book is that, you know, community is, is a much more important bond and it's a much more important way of dealing with crisis than any of these people acknowledge. It's much more important than like stockpiling tinned goods or like freeze-dried foods or digging a bunker or whatever. And most of these people have a real blind spot when it comes to community, whether it's like the doomsday preppers that I write about early on in the book or, you know, someone like Peter Thiel or people building luxury survival bunkers in South Dakota or whatever it is. Across the range of conversations that we had with people from the worlds of arts and entertainment, that word just kept coming up. Community. It's not even a theme unique to this episode. A lot of our guests for the other three touched on this too. On the surface, community feels like it should be a two-way street. But how do you go about building it when they can see you, but you can't see them? To the uninitiated, the world of television can sometimes seem to be operating at a remove though. Shiny sets with shiny-haired people interviewing shiny-faced guests about the newest, shiniest thing. But for Denise McNamara, series editor of The Six O'Clock Show, the real success has been how they've managed to break down that fourth wall. I'm the series producer of a show called The Six O'Clock Show. So it's an entertainment chat show. It's up against the 6-1 news. So primarily um, they get a lot of ratings. So it's it's trying to find an alternative at all times to a news. So it's primarily entertainment And actually, before COVID hit, I was the executive producer of another entertainment show called The Line Out, which was set up around the Six Nations. But as the Six Nations went on, a lot of matches were cancelled. So it was kind of depleting. So we didn't get to the, the final two episodes. So on both of those shows or the majority shows that I've done in the last few years, I would be editorial lead. So what that means basically is any content that you should see on that show, the format, the structure, even the tone or style that the presenters are delivering, it's really your responsibility to produce that. So if it's a guest or maybe it might be a particular part where you might do something different, that responsibility lies to me. And I suppose for context for our American listeners, when you say it's an entertainment show, it's it's a live TV chat show. 
It is. It's a live daily Monday to Friday chat show. It runs for about an hour each day. So it is tricky because it's a small country and we have, I suppose, the, the first slot usually would have been familiar faces. So be it actors, musicians, authors, we'd have them on and we'd have a few guests per show. So we might have three or four guests and we also have a cooking part. Obviously, at the best of times, it's difficult to achieve that five days a week with such a broad range of guests. But now you're in a scenario where you have to practice social distancing on set. Your guests are perhaps on Skype or another video platform. You have to separate your presenters on those small couches that you referenced. How are you going about that, Denise? At the start, it was, we limited it. So we had one presenter in studio and we would Skype the second presenter at home and maybe we would have two guests in studio, but we would separate the time between them so we we obviously wouldn't have them on the couch at the same time. Just because our set in itself is quite limited, we have two small couches and a kitchen. So we had to get out the measuring tape because obviously the, the two metres distance, social distancing was put in place. So it was just making sure that everybody was comfortable with coming into studio and that our presenters were and that we were taking, I suppose, all the procedures that we needed to take and put it in place. So it was a challenge at the start. And especially when you're ringing people for an entertainment show and hoping that they will come in. It's kind of a difficult ask, especially in those days when nobody knew or knew what was coming down the line. So like you're calling people to go, oh, we're just having, you know, a a chat to see how you're coping with all this. Like they weren't too open to it. It It's different from other, I suppose, current fair shows where their job is seen as essential. So they're seen, you know, as essential travellers. And that, I suppose, those regulations came down the line even after that. But very early on, I felt I felt a little bit uneasy with asking them. So I think those first few shows, we did maybe have one or two guests in studio, but then we had to pair it back and do it completely virtually which again in itself was a huge challenge because we'd never done that before. Like I suppose live television is so fast paced as it is (laughs) and you're like, you know, calling guests and trying to, as I was saying, trying to get a deeper element to their profiles that people wouldn't usually know and you're bringing them in and like there's so much involved around a live show. But now it was going to be this extra element where you have to be calling them virtually and like it was a whole different obstacle around technology that we just weren't used to until that point. So now I suppose, God, what are we? It was the 12th of March. So months later, it's a different beast in gallery now when you're out putting the show. So all of our guests are on Skype. And we did that very quickly early on because I remember even one guest, he rang me and he he just wasn't comfortable. And he was like, do I wear a mask on air or do I wear gloves? Or And okay. we had all the little things in places and that we had hand sterilizer from the minute that they would come into the show and all our floor managers would have masks and gloves on because they would be miking them. And then I 
that person said, he went and had a think about it and he came back and he was like, do you know what, whatever about politicians, you know, uh, or doctors, etc., being on the show, he just didn't feel comfortable with the fact that somebody would be watching him and going, who's that Egypt that is just talking about <laughs> entertainment and he's taking people's lives at risk. He was like, I, I just don't feel easy with it. So I think that was the first week. So from then on, we did everything virtually. So the Skypes is difficult. Skypes and Google Hangouts and Zooms and Live View. We're just, we're still learning from all of them. And so in gallery, I suppose, as a producer, you have to be across legal so that, you know, nothing defamatory is ever said. Um, And you're also across graphics. So when somebody would be talking about um, their mom, the viewer would like to see maybe a person if if they're taking, you know, talking about a heartfelt story about their mother that you'd like to see a still of them. So that has to go up and there's extra little bits about footage as well. And so you have to, so you, you really have to be on top of your game and you have to be listening to that conversation at all times. But now there's an extra element where you have to set up the next Skype interview. So you're doing one Skype interview And then you have to fill that time and get the presenters to fill that time with maybe comments that you have put in place or it could be a viral clip. And there's so many of them at the moment because there's so many people on TikTok and doing videos because they're stuck inside and they need to entertain themselves. So (laughs) and obviously there's, you know, other talking points like we really focus on the show on good news stories because we're there was so much tragic news and really emotional news at the start. So like, as I said earlier, we always try to provide an alternative. So from the first moment I was going, we need to get this tone right, that we're coming from the the end of the 5.30 news where people would have been informed of like the increasing numbers of COVID-19 cases and the deaths, be it nationally and globally. And that can take a huge impact on people's mental health. And obviously for the countless people that were grieving as well, because they would have lost Mm. somebody. So you do really have to be wary of that coming from the 5.30 news and straight into our show where we're acknowledging that, but we're trying to, I suppose, keep the spirits up if we can. Now, Denise, I better let you go because I'm conscious now that you have an entire TV show to put together for this yeah. evening. But before I do, I just wanted to ask, are there any parts of these changes that you've made or, you know, kind of special inputs that you've you've added to the show that you think you will actually maintain, even partially going forward with your work? Definitely, because I suppose even though it has been so difficult trying to get a grasp on the technology that was needed for all the virtual calling, we have been able to secure guests that we wouldn't normally be able to because they wouldn't be in the country or they wouldn't be able to get a flight over to us. So that has been brilliant. And I definitely think that it'll be something we'll continue into the future of the show. And also, I mean, like, who knows what will happen, you know, a few days or months, even a year down mm. the line of what our new normal will look like. But I don't think anybody before this would have thought that we'd be able to put a live show together 
while the majority of us were at home, you know? Yeah. And I mean, even outputting the show, we only go in a few hours before the actual show is put to air. So when you can see that and you can see the flexibility, it does work. And I there are some benefits to it. And I think people, some people are enjoying the flexibility that, you know, they can go for a run when they have a bit of time out between calls with guests, etc. That you would never even dream of doing inside by the studio. So definitely there are some things to look at. And I do think it'll, yeah, change the face of live television in the future. Who knows what the future might look like for live television, where it can operate as a slice of intimacy and a safe remove from its audience. But what about theatre? It's an art form that at its core, performers and audience and a marrying of the energy between the two has changed very little over the millennia. That may be because it hasn't had to. Anthony LeBlanc explains how the Second City have developed technologically savvy ways to interact with their students and audiences. So Second City, you know, it's been around for now since 1959. So we've been doing this for a super long time in, in Chicago, but also Toronto and LA and a lot of other places. So for us, like we're all very much about live, doing things live, live theaters, live, doing classes, that in-person connection that happens from being in a room, creating stuff with people. Uh, you know, I've had a, the wondrous joy of doing a lot of different things in Second City, from being a teacher being a performer on stage to being a director and now one of the artistic directors. And there's so much about that idea of having people watching you, being able to directly respond to you. And that's how we create our material. Like it's, you put it up in front of an audience and see if they like it or not. And then based on that, that then determines what makes the final show or not. Uh, So we use improv to help create or adjust the scripted material that we do to come with that final product that becomes that thing on stage. And we feel like in classes, that's another thing that we do. You know, we really value the idea of people connecting and, and being able to learn how to communicate with other people, trust themselves and trust each other. So you know, when we, you know, before that, so much of it, what we thought or believed was that, you know, oh, you have to be in person to really get the full experience that, you know, online, yes, there's things you can do. We've got writing classes. We've done trainings and stuff like that we had online. We've offered up videos and things that we did, but, you know, we're always like, oh, it's not the same as coming to the theater, sitting there for two hours and then feeling like this special magic that's happening in front of you. So, you know, it, it was very interesting of how, you know, I would say pre, you know, a few months ago, uh, even though things would come up of like, hey, let's move this direction. It was always very slow because there was always a little bit of that hold on to the magic of of live. Well, I think one of the things that was great was we'd already for classes really moved into our digital format. So I would say like five or six years ago, really going hole into it of like writing classes we're doing online already we were doing a lot of storytelling and things that were that nature that worked very easily in a a kind of digital delivery improv is a thing we had not really tried as far as a full-on class but we have started to do some of the things when it came to training and our uh corporate side where we deal with corporations and different companies of doing one-on-one trainings to help people with being better managers or being better uh, leaders. So we had those two things of using platforms like Zoom, using things like Canvas, which I also teach and have taught at universities in Chicago. And, you know, 
learning management systems are very, you know, a part of the, you know, the current versions of how people do college, you know? So we started to use that in our teaching. So that was a, it more so was the mental jump of people saying like, you can't do improv online. No one will take an improv class online. It's not the same. And then, you know, the head of our training centers, Abby Wagner, she was like, let's just make, let's try it. Let's make it, let's see if we can do it. Let's go into it and then see if it works. And if it fails, it fails, but we at least have to try because our students deserve that. And so that became what we did. We basically took a, a week and <laughs> completely moved online, wow. turned over our canvas, started creating Hangouts and Google, trying to figure out all the things to make it work, and then using teachers to beta test things and try things out. And then the same side, you know, the production side, similar thing happened as we started to do that on this class side. The head of the uh, of theatricals, Chin Hoyt, was also like, well, let's try it. Let's try and put something online. Can we make this work? And, you know, doing short form, a show, games, let's see if it happens and we can go from there. And we put up a show, people came and watched it. And then we've been spending the last several weeks trying to innovate ever since of like adding more things, more elements. Can we add some slightly scripted stuff? Can we prep videos to tie into the things we're doing? And I think over the next six weeks, we've really had a, a really lot of success as far as like having an experience that I feel that the audience really feels is just as magical because they're kind of like, how are you doing that? Or I'm having a great time. And that's the thing we kind of forget is that the thing that was magic about the theater performance was the fact that people for that two hours kind of forgot about the world to a certain degree, except for what was in that room. And we still did social political satire. We're still talking about things, but it allows you to kind of really just be in it. And I think that the same thing with our online shows is we try, we can't go as long, right? They can't be two hours, but for hopefully for that 30 to 45 minutes, you will have that place where you escape into this very fun, interesting world where you laugh, you might think a little bit, and you also are trying to figure out how do they just pull that off? And I might also be in the show possibly because any time I could get pulled up and be used as someone who might be in the show if I raise my hand and say, I want to play. That's very, very cool. So what are the biggest challenges in bringing all that together then? Uh, the big thing I think for us has been a mixture of how do we keep the interactivity or the feeling that um, this is happening right now? Now, we, we are moving towards and trying some things with using video or, or things of that nature and, 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 and having some things that are prepped. Um, but we still want to have that feeling that like when you come to it, this is something that is just for you and that in theory you can't see it if you missed it i think the other thing is the fact of like uh we always in our regular shows have at least one piece if not more than one where we engage the audience in some kind of way whether pulling somebody up on stage or talking directly to the audience or something that might be improvised uh, even in a scripted show and that's the thing we've also been working with is you know for us zoom has been the easiest platform we've really found to be able to have people in the space that we can instantly take them, put them into the show, do something with them, and then put them back into the audience uh, because they can exist inside of it versus say like a YouTube or something where you're just watching it as an as a passive person. Uh, which is a little different from say our topic shows, which are more scripted, put together um, sketch you know, video sketch show, which is more of a traditional, you know, mm -hmm. television model. Uh, in that case. Uh, the other thing I think that is our biggest challenge is, is just straight up t 
technology and, and, and kind of Frankensteining things together. So uh, this is one of those things like, so my background before coming to Second City, I went to college for computer science and physics. That's my double major. And my goal in life originally was to work for NASA. That's what I wanted to do. So right. even when I was touring, I was, I did programming and did a lot of that stuff. And I still, you know, as part of just my downtime fun, I occasionally will do some of that, even though now I've transitioned into a different world. Like, as I, enough, you, you knew, like I, I work Second City as a district but also I'm an onset acting coach for Nickelodeon for the show, all that. So I also work in that regular television world. So I don't do as much of this. So it was actually for me, super fun. We're like, now I'm like spending days using Apple scripts and, and playing with code and trying to figure out how I can get different programs to talk to each other to make these things all work seamlessly. So using a program like QLab, which is our traditional kind of um, software that we use in theater to cue different lighting effects, sound effects that can do video. It's how a lot of shows will create that tech inside of a show. Me using that to try and connect it with Zoom to then like make Zoom do things using Apple scripts that are programmed. So I can like share with a with one click and then the video pops up and the sound starts playing. And I, every week I'm trying to say, how can we do this? All right, let's figure this out. Or an actor will be, hey, I want to try this bit out. This try, can, can we do this? I'm like, I don't know. Let's figure it out. And I even sit and try and workshop it of like, how do I get that weird picture to show up? on the screen for you and then do the certain thing you want it to do. I really, really want to ask you, you know, how you're doing the various things that you're doing, but I know I can't ask you to give away your secret sauce. (laughs) (laughs) In terms then of the classes that you guys do, I'm really curious, has there been an influx of more people signing up to try improv for the first time because, you know, they're bored at home and it's less perhaps pressure for people not in the same room and that they can kind of ease themselves into it a little bit. Yeah, it's, it's actually really a mixture of both. So we, we do have some, some you know, uh, the folks who are some of our traditional students who it took a little convincing to get them on board with like, hey, this is going to be cool. Check this out. Give it a chance. Give it a week or two. We gave every student that was currently going like, hey, you got to you know, give us a week to see if you like it. Come to class first and make your choice. And we are actually surprised how many people stuck around in that case because of that difference. But the thing we have discovered, and it was actually one of our dreams that we always wanted. We always thought about on the training center side of an online school or how to connect with people who can't afford or can't spend the time to come all the way to Chicago or LA or Toronto to study with us or even somewhere near them, you know, like where they might not live in a major city like Atlanta or even, you know, Denver or New York or places that have an established community. That is who we're, I think we're starting to see. We, we have people who are not only just like, I've never want, I've never been able to try this. So a bite size hour long or hour and a half long thing might be a cool thing that enriches me and helps me be a you know better presenter but we also have some people who are like i live in this small town i you know i can't drive three hours to go take this class um i want more than just the one week i came to chicago or new york to to do this and now i get to participate just before we continue with today's episode i wanted to let you know about off script It's a new series of candid conversations with Intercom leadership all about the extraordinary AI-driven transformation we're currently experiencing. Episode 1 is on our YouTube channel right now. Here's a teaser of what you can expect. I don't want to come across as overly dramatic, but for every single tech company, this is an adapt-or-die moment. 
it's inevitable that all businesses are going to go AI first. It's just a matter of time. In this post-AI world, new companies will rise, old companies will fall. Of course, some of these new companies will flame out. Some old companies will pivot successfully too. I don't think any of us could see a world where this wasn't going to be one of the biggest changes in the customer service landscape ever. The world we care about is customer service, and it's so patently obvious that the old way will be quickly obsolete. We're racing hard to build a future which will result in better experiences and results for customers and businesses too. It's not just a product change, it's a mindset change. Let's make space to talk about all of this. We have so much we want to share. We want to explore these ideas in the open. We want to provoke new ones in you. We want to learn from your reaction. You just click the kind of like big stupid go button, right? And see what happens. Welcome to Offscript. That's all to come on Offscript. The first episode is out now. You can watch it on Intercom's YouTube channel and we'll bring you audio versions of the episodes right here. Now, back to today's episode. It's fair to say that a lot of us just want to participate in something at the moment. It's why those of us who've been missing being out and about have sometimes eagerly tuned in to watch our favourite musicians stream a live gig from their own living room. In some respects, you can't get more intimate than inviting your fans into your own home. But at the same time, it can be a weirdly sterile occasion. Some musicians are managing to counteract that last bit with collaboration and creativity. Here's Phil Jones. We're a record label and management company based out of uh, Long Beach in California in the US. I'm based in London. I work predominantly in management, managing Alvaredi, Yeseya, Magic Numbers, Yumizuma, amongst others. And yeah, things were great up until COVID. Um, we had lots of festivals and touring opportunities lined up for our artists, tours on sale. We had artists with albums about to be released or conceptualizing plans to release records and as soon as, as soon as March came along everything just kind of hit us full speed and knocked the wind out of ourselves somewhat. Yeah it's a really difficult time for recording artists I think but also for the people on your side of the business because so much of what you do is around the release yeah. or the you know supporting people to go on tour so how have you had to adapt to what's going on because as you say there's been gigs cancelled presumably releases pushed back how are you guys managing it's tough but we're kind of working on the principle that you know the show must go on it's business as usual mm -hmm. and like you say like we're having to adapt and kind of almost learn new skill sets and but i mean it, one of the one of the great things to, to come from all this it's been really great to see artists adapting to different things and wanting to collaborate and being open to things that they probably wouldn't have been open to three or four months ago. So whilst it's tough, we're certainly learning a lot each day. I don't know, it's just, it's a really bizarre time and kind of just take it each day as it comes. Do you think that what's going on is kind of forcing the music industry as a whole to take stock of how they go about promoting music because when you when you strip away the ability to do a gig when you when you strip away the kind of press tours or going into radio stations and doing those in-person appearances when you take away that you're left with the music and you kind of have to find new ways of promoting that I guess yeah definitely it almost feels like it's gone full circle again like I often say that like 60s and 70s and 80s up until the digital age people used to just 
tour records and now people just put records out to justify going on tour because obviously that's where the, the big revenue is. But um, I think we're definitely in an age now where the song and the artist is is of most importance. So it's going to be interesting to see how things change and you know how the general public kind of get behind artists and things like Bandcamp are doing with the Bandcamp Friday where they're waiving all artist fees and I think they're, they're doing like 7 million revenue each of those Fridays that they do that for their artists, which is great to see. It's almost going back to a grassroots again. Yeah, absolutely. And what, you know, for your artists then, what sort of stuff are they doing to keep going at the moment? So, you know, are there live streamed gigs that people can watch? Are you doing digital only releases? How are you guys going about that kind of on a nuts and bolts level? We're just kind of working on the basis that it is business as usual. Obviously, physical releases with manufacturing plants being closed down and the backlog that's going to be post-COVID. So we are tending to focus more on digital right now. All our artists are super creative people and it's been fascinating to see them coming up with ideas and learning to adapt and just kind of breaking outside of what what, what we see as the norm usually. And an artist that we manage, an all-female band from California, La Luz, they did a live stream the other week and they're based between... Northern California, Southern California, and Florida. So obviously them being in the room together is is impossible. Sure. So they projected two of the band members onto Shana's wall and they kind of, I mean, that that was pre-recorded, but it really worked well on the live stream. And people were like fascinated, like how the hell did you um, pull that off? Obviously it was pre-recorded, but it just, it really worked. So yeah, there's a lot, I mean, people are coming up with loads of cool concepts and ideas each day, I guess. And Every day I'm like, wow, I wish I'd have thought of that. So there's lots of kind of interesting things going on. And I think if anything kind of good comes from COVID-19 is that the whole the whole culture of having to get up at nine o'clock and go into an office may change. Like I think people are definitely seeing that folk can be just as productive at, at home as they are in an office. And then the question for the company is like, why are we wasting all this money on renting a fancy office space in the middle of London? when, you know, we've got staff that can be trusted to, to work efficiently at home. And, and, like, personally speaking, I hate working from home. Well, I did. I've always had to have an office space just because I just, historically, I wasn't productive at home. But I found that, like, the last couple of months, I've really got into it. And I'm questioning whether I need to be shelling out lots of money each month in our office space. Like, maybe I just work from home and then go into town and take meetings and stuff. So... Yeah, it'd definitely be interesting to see how that whole culture shifts post-COVID. Are you thinking more about what the future might look like for you? And, you know, how necessary are certain elements of what we did before in a less grassroots way in the music industry? Yeah, definitely. I mean, we're, we're kind of talking almost daily on how we adapt as a company and how we adapt for our artists and, you know, speculating about what the future my whole but I think if anything aside from the kind of shifting culture of working from home it's like there seems to be much more of a sense of community in the music industry in general like people are more open for discussion and collaboration and you know interest in how their peers are getting along it's less of a us versus them mentality Community, as part of entertainment, can mean more than just the creatives, though. It also means the people that you choose to consume it with. This was the case for Owen Nolan, who has recently rediscovered the benefits of something he built many years ago while sustaining a long-distance relationship. So, 
the project itself, basically, it's it's a way to allow people to easily watch movies together when they're really far apart. And it kind of it came into existence back in 2018, so way before this all this stuff mm-hmm. kicked off, when um, my girlfriend was moving to Argentina for a year. She's got a bit of a, a travel bug and has always wanted to do this. So uh, I think anyone who's done long distance relationships knows that it's like, it's pretty tough. And one of the things that you need to do is you obviously need to put a lot of work into it, right? And being a nerd, I thought, hey, maybe I can solve some of these problems with computers. So we would chat every day, you know, do the normal stuff. But one of the things that we would do at home is, you know, we'd watch our favorite shows together, favorite TV, whatever the latest movies are. And one of the things I think is quite important when, you know, someone's on the other side of the world and you're, you're trying to stay close is like to to keep a sense of normality in your like day to day relationship. So this is where the idea for Venus came from. Like, can we make it easy to like sit down and watch a TV show just like we would at home? And we looked into other tools that were out there, things like Netflix Party and uh, stuff like that, which which are pretty cool. But I think one of the things that they are missing is you can't see the other person when you're watching the your like TV show together, and there's like there isn't that sense of like actually being together. So I sat down. I was like, I'm pretty sure I can write the code for this. And over the course of a weekend, I wrote a really janky first version. <laughs> of Vemos, which let us actually download films and, and watch them together in sync. And it worked really well for us, like really, really well for us. We were using it every second or third day. It was really good. It didn't really get much usage. I posted it on Twitter that like, hey, I built this site. It lets you watch movies together. I, I don't think it was like user friendly enough for other people to pick up, which is fine to be honest, because Mainly, I was just building it so that myself and my girlfriend could watch things together. But I did get some feedback at the time. I was like, oh, that's really cool. Like, does it work with Netflix? Does it work with Amazon Prime? And I always told myself I'd, I'd get around to it. And this was in 2018 or early 2019. And of course, never did. As with most side projects, they kind of <laughs> take the back burner. But then, of course, fast forward to 2020. and it's not it's not just me doing a long distance thing, but it seems to be literally everyone on the planet is doing a long distance thing. Even uh, if they live nearby. That's it. Yeah, you could be a kilometer down the road. It, it doesn't matter. You have to stay at home. So I thought, actually, this is the perfect time to, to reboot this project. This is a thing that I genuinely think will bring a lot of happiness to people during this really crappy time. So I knew that... I needed to make it a bit more user-friendly. I needed to make it work with the most popular streaming services, Netflix, etc. So I took all the old code that I had and I scrapped it and I started again. I basically, I had, I had a good idea, I thought, and put it together again over a long weekend and posted it on Twitter at the start of May, I think it was, or no, sorry, the start of April. And it really took off. I'm not a big Twitter user, so when you post something that gets a lot of traction, you're like, oh, wow. So a project that started as a way for myself and my girlfriend to to watch things together kind of blew up into a way that everyone can watch things together during this strange time. 
but it is the the perfect tool for the times that we find ourselves in. And I think you're so right it, when you say how it differs from Netflix Party, because I've used both. And while the chat function in Netflix Party is great and you can chat along, you could actually, you know, just start it at the same time and, and do that in a WhatsApp, which I think people often do. What's different for your feature is that you can actually see the facial expressions. So if somebody rolls their eyes or, you know, has a a wry side comment to make that really only fits that moment in time of that thing that doesn't really warrant typing out, you get that experience. It's like being in a room with them online. Exactly. And that's the kind of thing that I was trying to replicate with this app. Um, Yeah, I I think it does a pretty good job of it. So I, I went out to pick what I thought were the, the, the most popular streaming services and made it work for them. So to Netflix, Amazon Prime, Hulu, Disney Plus. So I got subscriptions for, for all of those, except Hulu because it's not available in Europe. I couldn't mm-hmm. figure out how to get that. Um, I got subscriptions for all those and I uh, made sure it worked with them. The, the thing about the technology though is that I didn't really have to do anything particularly specific for, for any of those sites. It all just kind of works. So the feedback that I got immediately after releasing it was, you know, I had a bunch of Canadian users asking me, hey, does this work on Crave? I was like, I've, I've never heard of that service, but um, <laughs> I, I assume it does. So I, I got a bunch of feedback like, hey, can I work on X? Can I work on Y? Can I work on Z? And the thing about Chrome extensions, which was a learning thing for me, was you have to give it permissions to run on those specific websites. And if you submit an app to the Chrome store and you say, hey, this thing can run anywhere, the folks at Google are like, ooh, (laughs) I'm not sure about that. So I needed to figure out a nice way to actually allow it to run anywhere, but also be a bit security conscious. Obviously, like Chrome extensions there can have some like security flaws with them, I guess. But like, I think I I got a good solution to it anyway, where you can opt in to run demos wherever you want. So those Canadian users who wanted to run it on crave.ca, they're able to do that now. I've actually, there's been a lot of strange use cases or kind of cool use cases that I I didn't realize there'd be. Like I had some college lecturers message me. They were telling me that they were running one of their film studies classes on it. Oh, wow. Which is, yeah, because I'm like, that's really cool. I, I wrote this for like two people to watch a movie together. and you know, I guess because everyone's doing their courses from home these days that there is a market for tooling there as well. And it kind of, it blew my mind that people are finding these amazing use cases outside of what what I even thought of. That's the interesting thing about what's happening right now. Unforeseen challenges have led to unforeseen creativity and community from people who just want to help themselves and others get by. It's anyone's guess what this means for the future or whether at-home entertainment is likely to be a bigger part of what lies ahead. What is clear is that we just might appreciate it a bit more if it is. The original meaning of the word apocalypse from the Greek is a a revealing or an uncovering, which is why, you know, the, the book of Revelation, the apocalypse. And I think there's something to that. There's something about the idea of the apocalypse that like for me, first of all, it reveals certain things about the present and that's why I'm interested in it. Like I'm not 
terrible, despite having written two books now about like, quote unquote, the future, I've, I've never been particularly interested in the future in and of itself, as in I'm not that interested in like, you know, talking or thinking about how things are going to look in 50 years time or 100 years time or whatever, or the future of technology or the future of humanity or whatever. I'm interested in what the notion of the future reveals about the present. And I think there's a way of thinking about what we're going through now as, you know, apocalyptic in the sense of revealing things about our culture. And like, I think everyone's going through that at a certain level. Everyone's going through some sense of like renewed perspective and renewed kind of illumination of the way we had been living and the way that our societies structured and our economies are structured and so on. I think there's a sense of like, yeah, of kind of revelation happening at the moment, which isn't to say that like there is this necessary revolutionary energy happening. I don't think I'm not that sort of uh, optimistic about it. I don't like you do hear a lot of talk about how, you know, things are never going to be the same and so on. I think that's not necessarily a given. I think, you know, these things have to be fought for. They don't just naturally flow out of any current situation. But I think there is definitely a sense of perspective that we're getting at the moment that we didn't have before. Well, even if it's something that just stops people from coasting into a reality that might have happened otherwise just because. Yeah, yeah, no, I think so. And I think like there's a necessary sort of pause happening. And I think like good things will surely come from that. I mean, even just on a personal level, like probably finding it no more difficult than anyone else and in some ways probably easier. But one of the things that I've found is that like my standard of like a a highlight of the day, like a pleasurable thing has come way down. So like I bought a bike recently and like the highlight of, of like a day for me is like going for a cycle or just going for a walk in the park or just hanging out with my kids or whatever. These things that would have been fairly like, you know, it would be easy to sort of overlook them within the sort of texture of a day they start to become like, you, you start to take more notice of them as like real pleasures or whatever. I don't know, maybe it's the same with most people, but I definitely have found that myself. I would 100% agree with you. There's kind of, by being forced to come to a pause, you actually do stop and smell the roses and, and see the beauty in the mundane stuff that you just wouldn't have taken stock of before. Right, because there's so little else. I mean, you know, exactly. if you come across a rose to smell, then you're going to smell it because, you know, there's <laughs> not much else in your five kilometer radius or whatever. We hope you enjoyed our final episode of Home, a special four-part series on Inside Intercom that explored how folks are adapting in their approaches to health and wellness, socializing, business and entertainment in our current circumstances. You can check out episodes one to three on our blog, along with an article and reading list for each. We'll be back to our regular programming next week, so make sure you don't miss out by subscribing now on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We hope you'll join us.